0: as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. So talking to Dr. Tracy Brower was the first new podcast episode I've recorded in over 16 months, because all the episodes you've been listening to up till now were recorded when we were still at the height of the pandemic, and we just took a pause. Um, So I'm really excited to have stumbled across this great article in Forbes that Tracy wrote, reached out to her, and then simultaneously was sort of stalking her and reading her book, The Secrets to Happiness at Work. This is going to be one of those conversations that you're going to want to get a pen and paper out because I I feel like she gives you some really juicy bullet points. And my biggest takeaway was, wow, measured sort of descriptions of the workplace are important because we're kind of in a cultural funk right now where we try to make things and people villains in our narrative. And I think what I took away was we make the workplace a bad place. But she said, you know, when workplaces are operating well they're in really important sites of belonging that we actually get a lot of our social wellness needs met if the workplace is run well. And I think this is a really important thing to think about. So I thought this was a really juicy conversation. She also has another book called Bring Work to Life. Um, She has lots of articles you can find that she gives away for free on her website, tracybrower.com. And then of course I stalk her on LinkedIn. So go check her out, but listen to this conversation. I think this is going to really make you think about connection in the workplace. I'm excited to share Dr. Tracy Brower with you. Well, it's really fun, Tracy, for me to have a Tracy on the Sidewalk Talk podcast. <laughs> Welcome. I'm so excited to be in connection with you. And I've got to be honest with everyone listening. I I was frantically doing research on belonging. In the last couple weeks, partly because I'm feeling like an outsider being an expat in a country for three years. I've now moved past the idealization phase and into the, oh, I don't speak the language. It's really hard to make idle chit chat with my barista phase. (laughs) I miss that. And so I read your piece in Forbes and um, it took me down a rabbit hole of all the things that you do um, with your PhD in sociology and, and your studying management, you just really are an inspiration. So I want to say first, our heartfelt thank you for the work that you do that sort of benefits the rest of us about how to have a more joyful life at work. Really. Thank you. Oh, that's so kind. I really appreciate it. I, I so
1: appreciate it. Those connections are so important for all of us.
0: So I'm hoping that I can learn something from you today about... I mean, I'm just wanting to be a better connector all the time and work is so strange now after this pandemic. And so I just wanted to start by asking you, how has your thinking changed about work and meaning and joy at work after the pandemic?
1: yeah, I mean, things are upside down and inside out. And I love your language of being a better connector. and I, I just always want to be learning about what's next. and and I the thing that um, has shifted for me in the way that I think about work is just how critical and central it is. You know, like I always knew that, but we're in this moment of people who have been distant from their work, distant from their colleagues feeling distant from their purposes and the ways that they contribute to their communities. And by community, I mean work community and the broader community. And that has been so correlated with depression and anxiety and mental health issues. And and we have this narrative right now that work is bad, less work is better, as little work as possible for good mental health. And that's just wrong. Like work is a really important way that we feel a sense of identity and a sense of value, no matter what we do. And so the thing that I'm thinking about work is just how critical it is that we appreciate it as
0: part of a full life, not the only part of our life, but part of a full life. I appreciate you sort of being contradictory to all the news news that's out there about work right now because i i, I am a bit the same way it's a little, you're being a little rebellious tracy <laughs> <Not true>. <laughs> um, <laughs> and i like it um i agree i agree but i am curious why why is why is work being picked on as the bad guy in the narrative right now do you think
1: yeah, I mean it's such a great question. There's part of me that's just not sure. Mm-hmm. And then there's part of me that thinks that it has to do with our distancing. Like we have become so distant from each other and then I think we can get into this like almost like a vicious cycle of I don't feel connected, I don't feel as valued, therefore I don't connect as much and I don't feel as valued and and we lose that sense of connection to work um and 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 then it can't be that source of joy or happiness. And so we we turn it into this more negative part of life. And and we've entrenched in some cases in some new comfort zones of, you know, being home and being in our cocoons. And there's a lot that's wonderful about that. I mean, I I love to, you know, not put on my button pants every single day. And I love to work in a hybrid manner, right? Like, like everybody else. Um, but I think that has Exacerbated this narrative and this distance from work. I heard a really interesting economist talk about how in previous, you know, how we had really low unemployment before the pandemic, and then we had record high unemployment, and then and now unemployment is low again. And this economist was saying that in a typical cycle. People stay very loyal to their employers because they want to hold on to their jobs, especially when things get rocky. And this economist was saying that we've had the fundamental severing of our connections to our work as a source of identity, as a source of stability, because there's so much else that's unstable. So this fundamental severing, I think, is just a really interesting concept how how are we no longer feeling as connected to our colleagues? How are we no longer feeling as connected to the purposes of the organization? How are we no longer feeling as connected to the leaders and organizations? And I think it has to do with distance and then the narrative that gets perpetuated. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I need to learn about
0: that. Too. I'm going to, I'm going to geek out with you too and take my therapy work. Cause I'm a full-time therapist. So I'm, I'm going to just go on a little free association. And I have, I am also guessing that we're going to be in a conversation. Maybe we'll both learn something. <laughs> you know what? It just occurred to me. So first I had this image, I had an image of a tree and you know, this story that trees connect their roots under the soil to other trees. And what you'd said about work being a place of stability and identity, it made me think, right, we've uprooted all these trees and now we don't, we're do not we not connected under the roots. So that was the first thought that I had. The second thought that I had was, oh, right, and then psychologically, whenever we get our roots disconnected from our community, we have a psychological reaction to that from a, a deep attachment place, from a psychological, psychobiological place in us. And for some of us, what happens is we do have to find a villain in that narrative. We have to find a bad actor. We have to pinpoint who has abandoned us. And perhaps the workplace is the villain, right? Even though actually it was the pandemic that created the villain, right? Our attachment wounds, we are attached to our workplace. I We've had other coaches, I used to publish a psychotherapy magazine and a couple coaches would say, look, we actually transfer our mother, father stuff onto our bosses all the time. We transfer our family stuff onto the workplace. Our workplace is a secondary family. We play out all this interesting family systems wounding in the workplace. And so you just made me think of all of that. And my mind just went, oh yeah, maybe maybe the workplace is the villain because it's the abandoning mom or the abandoning father. (laughs) I don't know. That is brilliant.
1: What a wonderful hypothesis. That's so interesting. And I think it goes along with, like, I feel like social media has been so detrimental to our society because we compare and we, communicate with each other in sound bites, and we can't get the nuances of disagreement. And so disagreement doesn't become a point of learning and debate and positive energy. It becomes a point of polarization and distancing. And, and we become so self-focused. And, and I think about like when there's a villain, it's about who's who's hurt me. And it's a self-focusing that goes on as well. Mm -hmm. And, and one of the things we know about happiness, like there's so much research on happiness and joy, and it's just fascinating to me. But one of the things that's correlated with happiness is focusing on the community, focusing on what I'm giving more generosity is correlated with happiness and more self-focus is negatively correlated with happiness. So I, so as you were talking, I was thinking about that villain model. I was thinking about that playing out our family dynamics challenge, and kind of that in all of that, we can also become really self-focused, right? Like what's been done to me? How have I been left alone? What are the ways that I've been wronged? And then that more self-focusing is so negatively correlated with happiness. And so all of a sudden work isn't that source of joy and, and it becomes a source of challenge instead and that villainization. It's a fascinating thought process.
0: I well, first of all, I personally need the reminder of the self focus today because I think when when you're when you're an expat, you become more insular because you, if, especially if you're in a country where you don't speak the language, right? And so I agree. I think that the more that we get in, I call it getting in your own dome, and it's like a little ping pong ball going around in your head. Nothing good comes out of that <laughs> because. We tend to we're, we we just our perceptions become incredibly distorted when we're self focused. We tend not to. This is all the stuff you're an expert in. We tend not to notice the positive. We tend to see people more as villains. We know that trauma, in and of itself, is an injury of is is an injury of agency, right? And so we don't feel like we have agency to make change. And um, so so self focus in some ways makes that stuff stick around a little longer. And I loved what you were just saying about um, how social media is actually, there's actually some interesting research too that's showing that it's not just social media, but it's our tech use in general. Social media makes us self-focused and tech use makes us more left-brained, which the left brain is about transactions and task completion. It's not about relating, it's not about caring, it's not about happiness and joy, (laughs) all that stuff that you know. Oh, this is fun. You're helping me connect dots, right? I love this. Um, Yeah,
1: you know, and just one other thing I was going to say about that, because I love your point about agency. Mm. And and I feel like this, like self, it's really, I think it's really healthy, right? You know more about this. You're the professional therapist and expert, but it's really healthy to be appropriately self-focused, right? Like I'm going to express self-care and I'm going to have boundaries and I'm going to you know, like express myself in a confident manner and feel like I have a place in the world. Mm -hmm. And that is more effective when we're focused on the community and on giving. And I think one of the myths of happiness is that we have to wait for all the conditions to be right, right? Like, like when I get through this tough project at work, when I work through this relationship challenge, when I move to my new house, when I, when I, right? And and we forget that we're so empowered to create the conditions for happiness, not to pursue happiness for its own sake. Mm-hmm. That tends to be less helpful, but to to create the conditions for happiness. And so that agency, like I think it's easy to forget about that agency, especially when there's so much going on around us, right? Like, and things feel so overwhelming. I can't. There are so many things that I that worry me that I can't solve, and then I feel less capable. And that lack of agency, I think, is so related. So I just love that point that that you're making. Another thing I was just learning about recently um, is when we are focusing on goals that are more comparison oriented, Mm -hmm. that is also less effective for, for creating the conditions for happiness. So if we're focused on um, seeking power or money or uh, status or hierarchy, those are all based on comparison to others. And that tends to be less, you know, less fulfilling, less nurturing. And that's really different than pursuing things like purpose or connection or learning or stretch or great performance. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about that agency piece and kind of that distorted view, which can also be part of the comparison that we make based on digital, based on social media. Mm-hmm. I like to think, too, that um, when we have a ha- heavy diet of digital, it's almost like empty calories. Like mm-hmm. like we feel like we're connected. We're connected all the time. You know, I've got how many how many friends do I have on my social media platform? Yeah. How many connections do I have? But it's like empty calories because it's not nurturing our need for connection in the same way. So, you know, it's almost it's almost Halloween in the U.S. So, you know, I can eat my candy corn, <laughs> but oh. uh, it's not going to nourish me. So right. I think it's kind of
0: like that. Well, I want to highlight a couple of things that you said, because I think it's really important. First, I appreciate you bringing in the nuance that, look, self-focus fo- self isn't a villain either. It's just keeping an imbalance. Right. If we're so self-focused to the detriment of being other-focused, then things get problematic. But there is a healthy self-focus, I heard you say. A healthy self-focus that says, hey, I need to take care of myself. I need to love myself. I need to make sure I'm not giving more than I have to give, because that just leads to depletion. So I appreciate you bringing in more nuance on that piece, right? And then this other piece around you know, just the ways in which we can have agency to create the conditions for happiness. I'm very curious. I wanna learn more, Tracy. What? Cause I wanna create more conditions for happiness. So I'm hearing already this hint that probably getting off social media and having more in-person or even online video interactions, real conversations probably create the conditions for happiness, but would you be willing to share your research on what are some of these conditions for happiness at work or in life? Yeah, absolutely. And
1: I feel like there's a really long list and it has to do with tactics like what you just reflected. And then for me, there's sort of a short list. And I like to think of kind of top five things. Finding a greater sense of purpose is a, is one of the conditions for happiness. And that doesn't have to be giant purpose. Like sometimes we think of purpose with a capital P and if I'm not, you know, changing the world, but really it's just the thing that we do well, we wake up in the morning and do well for the people that we care about and for Mm -hmm. our work community and, um, in our broader community. So purpose is one. Another is connection, connection, connection. Whether we're introverts or extroverts, we just need that sense of belonging, connection, shared social identity. Another really big one is gratitude. When we feel a greater sense of gratitude, not so much for things, but for people and capabilities and conditions, that's absolutely correlated with happiness. Another is performance. Like when we really feel like we're performing well, So we can look for places where we can contribute in ways that are really aligned with what we do well today. And then the, the other one that for me is so cool and fascinating is learning and stretch. Like the, the research on thriving comes primarily out of elite athletes and child development. Mm. And as you know, uh, and, uh, and, thriving
0: always I don't know component. by the way you keep saying as you know an expert yes. i'm not i'm a humble learner and learning is my core value so you can just It's don't know <laughs> same here
1: same here learning is a core value so i really appreciate that um yeah so thriving is always about current performance like ah oh, i just you know got my personal best on my sprint right but thriving always has a component of um Pushing, stretching, what's next, the way that I'm developing. Mm-hmm. And so when we are learning new things, when we're doing things we don't already know how to do, when we are sweating, either figuratively or literally, that's really good for happiness. And we all, we all need things we can do easily with our you know eyes closed and our hands tied mm-hmm. behind our backs. But when we have those opportunities to do something we don't already know how to do, that is also correlated with happiness. So for me, those are big five, purpose, connection, gratitude, performance, and learning. And, you know, we can unpack all of those. And then there are just tactical things like uh, taking a nap on a weekend
0: is correlated with happiness. So let's not forget those really important things as well. I'm good at that one. I'm really good at that one. Me too. (laughs) I appreciate that. So I do have a question because this is a place where I can frequently fall down I like expanding so much and striving so much. I was a competitive athlete when I was young. Um, and, and certainly I, I did not have a good childhood, which is why I'm a therapist. And th- sports were my, ha- I mean, they, I'm still friends with the people in my sports teams from when I was 12 and 13 and 14. Um, but I think that the piece that I hear so much, both in my clinical practice and in life, is that people have in a way over-expanded or they're reaching for too many things and burning themselves out. And I suspect you have a lot of nuance to add to this conversation because while there's some healthy striving that really contributes to our happiness, there seems to be this other thing that we're confronting right now. What, do you, what can you add here to my thinking and our knowledge? Yeah, I love that point. I think the key
1: thing is, When we feel like that expansion is nourishing us, Mm -hmm. that's great. When we feel so depleted by it, not so much, right? Like, like that's our hustle culture challenge. More, more, more. I need to run faster. I need to do more. I need to, you know, only cook healthy meals for my family and never take a shortcut. And I need to do all my volunteer work and I need to, you know, do all the things with my children and I need to care for my elders and I need to perform well at my, and you become like out of breath, literally and figuratively. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's about, like finding the things that mean the most to each of us
0: mm-hmm. and
1: doing more with each of those like i really love the idea that in order to say yes we have to say no mm. you know like like i'm a fan of saying yes to more versus less like wow what might be my next learning opportunity but in order to say a meaningful yes i've got to be able to say no to certain other things and there's such an opportunity cost like you know how we can have a big bucket list and I've got you know 102 things on my bucket list. That's actually not as helpful because now it's just pressure that I got to check things off. Yeah. And if I choose one country to visit, I want to be so present in that experience and not thinking about all the other things. So I think it's finding that right level of challenge. Mm-hmm. And I love the concept of, there's a sociological concept of demand and capacity. And our both of those um, change over time. So I might have um, tons and tons of demands on me from my work and my personal life and my you know community work, and I feel like I've got so much capacity. I've got a you know great situation in all these different places. And then there might be other times in my life where, oh my gosh, the demand is outstripping the capacity. Or I had something happen that reduced my feelings that I had enough resources to deal with all the demands. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the other thing to keep in mind is that our capacity for that stretch and that expansion shifts and it ebbs and flows. And that's okay too. You know, like, like we need to kind of be, I think, sometimes more fluid about the way that we think about. Our lives and our judgment of our own selves. Um, Less judgment is good and allowing ourselves that fluidity, right? So there may be times when I want to expand and I feel like that's a nurturing experience because I've got the capacity for it. And there may be other times when it's just really healthy to pull back and decide what are the most important things that I want to put time toward, which is, you know, easier said than done, right? We can all go, yeah, I've heard that before. (laughs)
0: Well, this actually leads me to my next question, because this is something that I've been, I'm always thinking about what helps us change, right? And Mm -hmm. what helps the change stick? Because there's, to me, there's one kind of change that feels a little oppressive. It's like, you just need to be a better human. And that feels uh, not quite part of the happiness paradigm. It feels like not acceptance and it feels not graceful and and it doesn't feel loving and kind. And then there's another kind of change that's in this realm of, wow, I really want to lead a rich and full life and be very happy and contribute and leave a legacy. But getting that change sort of Venn diagram right and sort of make sure that we're not sort of being mean to ourselves, but taking up change in a way that's, both meaningful, kind and lasting. And you I imagine in your work at Steelcase that you end up, you know, working with some of the staff there when they're burnt out or maybe there's a conflict and somebody might need to learn how to tweak some of their communication and I'm just curious how how have you found people to sort take up change in a meaningful and and compassionate way towards themselves. Mm -hmm. And you may not know, but I'm just curious to hear what comes to mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right. We do talk a lot about this and and we talk a lot about it with customers because we're thinking about like work experience and how can work experience be more nurturing instead of more sapping? How How do we not leave at the end of the day feeling just sapped? And I think about, you mentioned burnout. And I think about um, you know the conditions for burnout, which tend to be I feel trapped. I don't feel like there's a next step for me. I feel incapable or ineffective, and I feel cynical. Those are usually the things that go along with burnout. Um, and so I feel like we can think about how to create work experiences that help us to feel connected with our colleagues. So how can we? not just connect within our swim lane, but how can we connect people outside of their swim lane so they can contribute on a project that isn't something they might normally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a misnomer that uh, the best team bonding happens through social. Usually the best team bonding happens through tasks where we're rolling up our sleeves together and you know, working on something, a new initiative or solving a problem. And I think about, you know, helping people connect with their colleagues in affinity groups and interest groups and learning groups, that kind of thing. I think about um, creating the conditions in the workplace where leaders are empathetic and and we build teams where colleagues are attentive to each other and present Mm -hmm. and able to listen and, and be focused on each other. Um, You know, I think about organizations that create a strong sense of direction, at the same time they give a wonderful opportunity for feedback and voice and participation, and so as I think about helping people change. There's an agency part of it, which we've talked about, but I think agency can be punishing, right? Lean in, just lean in a little more. We also need to think about structure, right? Which are the things around us, which help us to be more successful. Mm-hmm. So I feel like organizations and leaders and colleagues have a not a responsibility for each other's happiness, mental health, well-being, but a responsibility to those things. Mm. Like the way, the, the thing that I think is really cool is sociologically speaking, the number one way we learn is through watching other people, listening to other people, experiencing other people. So we all have more um, influence over the structure than we think, right? Because the way we show up is a model for others, even if we're not trying to be all that. So um, so I think it's that, like enough agency and empowerment, but then also acknowledging the elements of the system that we can influence that are more um, helpful for people as they're trying to change. I don't yeah. know if that answers your question exactly, but that's what comes to mind.
0: Well, actually, you said something that I really want to highlight because it just got me so excited, right? I mean, I, I appreciate the structure piece. I appreciate the pieces that the organization needs to keep in mind. But you said, we, we actually learn and stick with change because we watch other people behaving and acting in ways that we want for ourselves. It's A, affirm something for me because I've been doing something. I've been a therapist for 18 years and my specialty is working with couples. And so one of the things couples have been asking me more and more to do, they said, don't just, don't just have us talk to each other. Can you just model how I should say that? And I'm like, oh, I didn't even think of that, sure. So I'll do role plays where I'll be one of the partners and the other partner will watch and I'll respond in a different way. They're like, oh, that's the tone of voice. Oh, those are the words. That's how you don't get to, because it's one thing to sort of dig in. It's one thing to explore. They're like, but I still don't know how to do it. Can you just model it? And I, I think also the secondary piece is right now, I'm really inspired by a particular group of people. And this is gonna sound silly, probably not to you. I have been studying people that are good friends I have some people in my life and I'm like, damn, you are my hero right now. You are such a good friend. Like the way that you know to check in on me in this moment and the way you check in on me or the way that you went to your neighbor's house and like knew that they were having a hard time and cleaned their house for them or you sent a postcard through the mail, like who does that anymore and says paper stuff. Like I have just been obsessed with observing people who are good friends and, and I'm not interested in a book about it. I'm like, I just want to watch them. I'm like, oh, that's how you do that. I need to do more of that. And that is the agency. The agency comes out of watching this behavior that excites me, that inspires me. And then I'm like, oh, I want to be like that too. I'm going to, I'm going to send a postcard to somebody, you know, And then the last thing I'll say is it took me back to a memory of my best corporate environment, because before I was a therapist, I was in tech and um, my last tech company was really hard to leave because I was having such a good time. I think because a lot of these attributes that you describe, empathy, community. My favorite thing was everybody in their position was just a little bit smarter than their title, which means that I got to be around smart people all day long. And so I felt inspired all day long. And then at the same time, there was a camaraderie. I remember my favorite thing was the VP of Global Partnerships found out that the VP of engineering, who was a woman, director of marketing, who was a woman, and me in sales, a woman, were all pregnant at the same time. So this is another one of those friend stories. She, this is a VP of Global Partnerships, right? She's an important lady she sewed us by hand baby blankets for all of our babies and then hand embroidered the name and date of the birthdays of our babies and gave them to all of us. And I just thought, I want to be like her. She's competent in her job and she's a good friend. That stuff matters, man. Big deal.
1: I love that. I have been studying and studying and studying friendship and connection and belonging and community. And I'm so with you. I was, um, I, I, I just think it's so important to think about like, what are those attributes of friendship? What kind of friend do I want to be? You know, like what kind of person do I want to be in the workplace or in my personal life? There's a wonderful story of Lynn and everybody said about Lynn, you know, once a friend of Lynn, always a friend of Lynn, right? Like she'd never let a real friendship go. She would stay in touch. She would check in, she would stay connected. Or I just heard about another another friend who said someone um, had passed away and they said the one thing about her that was so memorable was she was always present and attentive. Whoever she was speaking with, got her full attention. Mm -hmm. And that's such a way to demonstrate value. Right. And then I think about like you talked about sending a postcard, right? Like that investment of energy Mm -hmm. in the friendship, the attention to detail in the friendship, the thing that, you know, matters to somebody else, or that, you know, would um, matter in the relationship. I love that. And that to me, the other thing that you talked about is kind of like reflecting on your own processes and reflecting on what you value in friendships. And then how do you bring that to communities and to others? It's powerful stuff. And, and it brings us a sense of value, right? Like we are valuing other people and it's really fair that we also feel good about doing those things. Mm-hmm. Like that perpetuates the behavior in societies when we feel rewarded for those kinds of activities. And, and they are rewarding, they light up parts of our brain that have to do with connection and belonging and the need for human connection. So it's powerful stuff, especially now.
0: Yeah, I think when you were talking about growing and learning, and you said, Look, the growing and learning doesn't have to be, you know, a, a big, grandiose thing. And I realized that from these experiences that I've had over the course of my professional life, that one of the things that I've always been growing and learning is how can I be a better friend at work? Period. And it's like, wow. And the corporate, the workplace doesn't have to provide that for me. That's something I have total agency over. How can I be a better friend at work? Can I ask about somebody's sick child? Right? Can I demonstrate care? Can I ease someone's pain in a way that contributes to our collective well-being? And I, I realize that some of these ideas of growth do get a little grandiose at times, and sometimes they're the, the biggest ones are the really, really simple ones. How can I be a better friend at work? I love that. Yes, and work
1: is such a source of friendship. Like, and and there are reasons for that, right? Like, even if we move jobs every couple of years or so, which is kind of the norm now, we still get to work with people over time. So you get continuity, right? And in some cases, I've known coworkers longer than I've known my own children. You know, so you get that continuity over time. You see each other on good days and bad days, right? You see somebody yeah. come in top of the world and you see somebody another time who's, oh, you know, hasn't slept the night before for one reason or the other. And you see each other in both task and relationship. So we're working so hard on a project together and we're figuring it out. And we run into each other at the coffee pot and talk about, you know, the new puppy we just got or parents weekend or whatever. So work is a great, there are lots of reasons that work is a source of friendship. And so I love that idea of being a good friend at work. And and that brings so much value. And it's such a, um, it's such a it's another reason that work can be a source of joy and happiness as well right it's our contribution and our expression of our talents and it's that opportunity to feel connected
0: and i love that you're bringing in this nuance again tracy i you did something there and i'm going to just highlight it cuz I'm, I'm listening i'm practicing my listening skills i love that you brought in that the friendship isn't just the friendship cuz i think one of the mistakes i made early in my professional career is i would sort of zero in on the friendship only. And then I had a boss give me a really good piece of advice. He said, look, you want to have professional respect and friendship at the same time. The two are really important because you are completing a task together. And that, that sweet spot of, man, I have a ton of professional respect for you and friendship is like the holy grail of pleasure for me. Like when you, like when I would work with Ann, the director of marketing, and we would get something out the door and I was in sales and we would feel like we were firing on all cylinders. Meanwhile, I am i know her kid is at home sick and I'm caring about her about that. Or she's caring about me because I've got, you know, I'm nine months pregnant and how are you feeling? How's your back? You know, and while we're still getting this thing out the door, I mean, that stuff, that that combination that it's, it's a, it can't be only friendship, right? It has to be that friendship and professional respect that that is the sweet spot when those two things come together and you can just zoom zoom to the stars in terms of meaning together it's really cool
1: yeah so So, agree yeah it's uh it's both and I think about what as you were talking and as I was listening to those stories I was thinking about trust too right like like we can have both task and relationship trust. Like there might be somebody that I absolutely trust they're going to follow up on a project, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell my deepest, darkest secrets. And there may be other people that I would absolutely trust with really, really personal challenges that I'm struggling with or facing. And and when we have both in, in some people, right? That is a beautiful thing. I, I wrote an article about this, and there was so much controversy about whether it's right or wrong to have friends at work. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was surprised by the controversy. And, and some people were saying, I don't believe in friendships at work. I think there should always be professional distance. I think there should always be the right boundary." So I also think that there's a right, you know, like we each have our own right answers to that. Like you and I might be more similar in like, oh, I love to have that friend at work. And I love to, you know, um understand that her child is at home while we're going through the project and she cares about me being nine months pregnant. And um, and there there may be other people who um value a friendly workplace. Yeah. That was one of the things in the in the
0: um, stream of thought.
1: Like maybe I don't need friends at work, but I need friendly, but I love your professional respect. Like whether we're really close friends and we get together socially outside of work or whether we just feel connected around the work that we're doing around just Mm -hmm. caring about somebody as a human. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't have to, you know, be drinking buddies on the weekend for me to care about you as a human and care Mm -hmm. that I'm acting in a way that's respectful and empathetic and Mm -hmm. listening. Mm -hmm. I I love those points.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate so much of your time here today together. I I love the weaving paths we've taken. And um, it's really impacted me. And I hope everyone that that listens, um, that they feel like they can expand some connection and kindness in the workplace. Maybe not friendship, but maybe some kindness, right? That makes their life a little better. We have this little ritual that we do in terms of how we complete our conversation, which is I get out of the way and hand the mic to you to speak directly to all these souls that sometimes are given more to this project than I'm given, Um, listening on sidewalks to strangers around the world. Um, Anything that you wanna offer, whether it's wisdom, Advice or a wish?
1: Yeah, I really like the idea of a wish. Um, I don't know if I have any wisdom or advice. I'm just trying to find my way out of the paper bag myself. But um, a wish I really have is that we value work as part of our experience and that we understand how critical work is to our well-being, mentally, physically, emotionally, to our connections, to our learning. Um, Because I think that it's a really important way that we weave the fabric of the community, that we put ourselves in situations where we're listening and learning. And I feel like if we could shift our frame on work, it's not the only solution. It's one tiny drop in in the bucket, of course. But I feel like if we could shift our frame it would help us to feel the way that we are valued in a community and feel more deeply the way that we can express our talents and the way that we can um, really give value and feel value and therefore start to heal forward in a place where I think we really need that healing and optimism together.
0: Mm. Wow. I don't know. Said. It's a hard one. I think you're bringing in the nuance in this time that work can be a site of healing and, and value. So thank you for that. Thank you, Tracy, for being here and for everyone listening. Tracy Brower's information, some of the articles that I found, the one that she just mentioned, and her books will both be on uh, the podcast webpage with all the show notes so you can click over. And I highly recommend that you get Secrets to Happiness at Work. Um, I think it's an important read, and I, I can't thank you enough for being here with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Super appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from, and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.